Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the IDM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and this week I'm joined by Dwayne Sibley. He is a software engineer and is described himself as a lifelong gamer. Been very active on Twitter at it's now how do you pronounce your Twitter name? It's Valthonis. Valthonis. Okay. And he's also the founder of a site, Hammer Gaming, that's been around since 2007, started as a World of Warcraft guild, and we're going to be talking about how that's uh, kind of prolonged and developed over the last 10 years. Uh, so, Dwayne, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Michael. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we have known each other through Twitter for, I'm guessing, a couple, at least a couple of years now, if not a little bit longer Talking mainly about D&D and other gaming topics, I believe. Yeah, that's about right. And you know, one of the things I wanted to start off with is just checking in with you about you know, what originally got you into games and why has this been such a big component of, of your life? In terms of video games, I've been a video gamer since the age of, I think, four, when nice. my father brought home his first uh, Commodore 64, and I was playing games on that, and ever since I was pretty much hooked. I didn't really start making inroads into tabletop gaming, like beyond your usual 80s era boring board games like Monopoly and whatnot. I didn't start coming to tabletop role playing until I was in my early teens. During that phase of my life, I kind of fancied myself a writer. And I, I liked the idea of writing fantasy stories and one day while I was looking through a bookstore with my grandmother, I stumbled through a section of the bookstore where they had Dungeons and Dragons books. And I had heard of Dungeons and Dragons before, but I didn't really have much exposure to it at that point. And I didn't know what it was I was looking at, but I found a book called The Monster Manual. And I opened it up and I started looking through it and there was all these descriptions of these amazing creatures. And I thought, man, this would be great stuff, like great source material to write stories with. Mm -hmm. So sure. I begged and begged and pleaded with my grandmother and she let me have the book and I went home with it and I probably stayed up entirely too late pouring over the book and started cranking out story after story after story and the more I referenced the monster manual the more I started you know coming up against these rules these stat blocks that were in there and seeing how they related to each other and it got me curious like okay so they have these stats what do these stats mean and the book kept referencing a player's handbook and a dungeon master guide so I started saving my coins and got to a point where I could go ahead and grab all three of the core books. And the next thing you know, I'm planning a campaign for friends of mine in late middle school, early high school. And I've been a tabletop RPG gamer ever since. Isn't that how it happens? You just, you read one thing and then you just get sucked into the bigger world. <laughs> it is true. And how, how often do you get to play now? Not as often as I'd like. Um, <laughs> there, there was a time, especially back in college about, 10 years ago now, or actually, no, more than 10 years ago, goodness, more like 15, 17 years ago, where I would play every week. You know, I had a weekly group in college that I ran. I had a group of like nine players at one point. But these days, because, you know, most of my friends are adults now, I'm 37 and I have a, a day job. My wife has a day job and we have a 12-year-old son. And it's a lot harder to coordinate schedules once adulthood and employment kind of make inroads into your life. 
I'm in a weekly or actually more like a biweekly game of Star Trek Adventures right now, okay. which is great. I'm really thrilled with that. And over the summer, I was in a brief game of Dungeons and Dragons where we ran Brian Patterson's Carthoon campaign, nice. which was a fantastic experience. Um, Former but guest prior the show, to, yes. Yeah. Prior to this uh, prior to this year, I hadn't really played in a real tabletop setting on since 2009 so yeah it was quite some time and one of the things that i think be kind of interesting to talk about recently i was planning to start up a, a campaign using D D uh tales from the yawning portal and i was having mm-hmm. a hard time trying i wanted to populate the kind of t- tavern where they st- where the adventuring party was going to start out with this other group of adventurers and I kind of used the Dungeon Master's Guide to just develop some NPCs and just kind of rolled on some tables to put together traits. And you were kind enough to help me flesh out those characters. And I'm trying to describe, like, how much content you provided to me based on, like, the simple question I asked. I was kind of blown away by your feedback. So I guess could you tell folks about how that worked out? Well, so what Mike gave me was a list of uh he gave me a list of four NPCs. Actually, I, I believe it was three of them because you pretty much defined the the first guy. Yes. But there was a list of four of three NPCs that were that just they came down to just simple qualities, like an iteration of qualities, like piercing, powerful, has piercings, is powerful or brawny, is clumsy or fumbling, stares into the distance, is irritable, and so on. I'm actually reading from the email you sent me okay, back perfect. in back in May, and. What I what I did is I just I tried to take all of these things and try to visualize what comes out in my head. And I, I don't know how I do it. It's very difficult for me to describe, but I, I like to, to try and I, I see these things as a puzzle. And I like to try to put together the pieces that you gave me in interesting, non-standard ways. So for instance, the the list of attributes I just I just recited turned into a female dwarf fighter who is just this jacked woman, but, and very taciturn, you know, the, the, the stereotypical, you know, gruff dwarf, but also has a soft spot for sweets and children and has a, a dark secret and a powerful enemy. And I went into those details. I won't mention them here on, on mic because I don't know if your players have encountered those details yet, but it's, uh, I don't know. It, it, like I said, it's, it's kind of like a, a puzzle that I, I try to put together and make sure that I don't want the edges to be perfectly straight. I want the edges to be crooked because people are crooked. And that's where you that's where you get conflict. That's where you get friction. That's where you get interesting PCs and NPCs in tabletop games is when n- nothing is cut quite square. The edges are just a little ragged. And that's where the, the fun stuff happens. Yeah, and I I really appreciated it because I remember I was enjoying using the Dungeon Master's Guide and coming up with random traits and trying to, like, okay, who would these characters be? And then, yeah, you just jumped in and created these, like, really nuanced background stories uh, for these characters. And then all of a sudden I had this rival of sorts adventuring group that my hope is – kind of weaves in and out of the party's adventures as, as they go forward. But just in general, you know, I really, it's not something that I've done a lot before of 
almost like collaborative word, world building on the front end as a dungeon mm-hmm. master. Uh, I've talked to some other guests about enlisting the support of the players at the table or maybe even between sessions of having them help create sort of the fiction of, of the world around it. But I really enjoyed having our conversations back and forth about some of these characters and how they might fit into the game before we actually had a gaming session. And, you know, what are your thoughts about doing that a bit more, not necessarily with me, but just like using other people as a DM, almost as like a co-DM of sorts? Yeah, I kind of think of it as being a, uh, you know how Sherlock Holmes called himself a consulting detective? Yes. (laughs) I I feel a bit like a consulting DM when this happens. There you go. You need a business card with that now. Yeah. Yeah, I very much enjoy working with other DMs and just other creative minds in general. You know, I have more than once solicited the help of a bunch of friends and even just some acquaintances who I know are creative people or who have points of view that I don't and, you know, gave them this concept that I'm, I was planning on turning into a campaign at one point and saying, Hey, you know, what would be an interesting kind of way to tackle this? Or if I wanted to make this happen, how can I turn all of it on its head so that I confound expectations? And sometimes just, having those external points of view or going out, reaching out to a friend who has a talent that I don't have is very, very helpful, you know, and sometimes it'll help you see avenues to where you're trying to go that you never would have found on your own. And it's incredibly gratifying for me on both ends when I'm the one reaching out for the assistance or when I'm the one providing the assistance, I thoroughly enjoy it. And I've really found Twitter to be a great resource for this type of groupthink <laughs> in some ways, or just consulting with other players, other DMs. Like if you type in a question that you're curious about, whether it's about rules or how should this work in a campaign, or what do you think about this idea, and put the hashtag D&D, like somebody will respond to you, if not multiple people, with feedback and ideas and suggestions and I think that's really helpful instead of just trying to be isolated as the as the DM, which I think that role can get a little lonely at times. If, right. If you're taking on too much responsibility of, I mean, even running a published campaign, you can just like think, well, everything's in the book and I'll just rely on that. But there's a lot of different ways you can interpret different things or run the book in different ways. It's been a, a benefit for me over the years. I agree with you. I don't, I don't play nearly as much as I would like to because of life and child now and job and everything. But just having that uh, outlet has been really useful. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm. You're, you're making me think back to my college days where you know we had the internet because it was the the late '90s, early 2000s. But the you and the I D- aren't that old. We grew up with the <laughs> internet, sort of. I'm a bit older than yeah. you, but um, we, you know, we we had computers. They were they looked a yeah. little different, but we had them. Yeah, the, the the internet in college was nice, and it helped me, you know, get resources for planning my own game. But the the concept of having uh, a community of 
competent gamers out there who are willing to just contribute when you ask a question. There there were the Wizards of the Coast forums back then, but it was kind of a cesspool, and I didn't really want to wade into that at that point. So at that point in my life, I, I absolutely felt like I was cut off, like a, a D, every DM was an island unto themselves. And now with you've got Twitter and Facebook and all sorts of other social avenues on the internet that make it so easy to just tap into this. I, I almost want to call it a dungeon master zeitgeist where you could just throw a question out and the mob responds. I mean, and it's not necessarily always a mob. Sometimes I'll ask a question. It'll only be like, you know, two or three responses, but two or three responses are a heck of a lot better than just asking the question to yourself and going, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just like activate the hive mind of Twitter. Yeah. And it's just really, I think, really beneficial. And even if you get some ideas, you're like, nah, I don't want to do that, or I don't agree with that. At least it makes you think in a different way and take on the perspective of, oh, I guess I could do that. Right. But I'm not going to. I like my idea better. But it's just been really useful to bounce things off of people. I think on the flip side, it was funny at the last game I had, because I was going back and forth with you and some other folks about how I had planned out this kind of mini dungeon delve. One of my players was like, oh, yeah, I think I saw you named this god on Twitter, right? I was like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't be reading my Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, it, it, it may be time for a uh, DM-only itty uh, account yeah, that nobody else knows about. <laughs> right. So... One of the things you, you, you kind of hit on there is just talking about how <laughs> forums can be quite a, a cesspool. That's definitely something I, I encountered back in the day when I visited forums and you know, before Twitter was around. But I wonder for you, like, what roadblocks, if any, did you face in terms of getting into gaming, whether it was video games or tabletop games later on in your life or even now? Like, what are some of the downsides if if any or things you've had to overcome to just kind of have this flourish as a hobby well i i did mention or i may have mentioned earlier that uh i got into gaming in my early teens uh the problem that the biggest problem i encountered early on was just lack of interest you know early 90s it was very difficult you know dnd that was not part of the accepted social norms in the way that it approaches now and you know uh, other role-playing games that weren't dnd were pretty much unheard of um it continues to be the 800 pound gorilla but even back then it was even more so so getting other people my age interested in sitting down at a table with some snacks and some drinks for a few hours at a time while we pretended to be other things that we weren't and convincing them that that was a good time proved to be exceptionally difficult early on. Um, I didn't really start getting into steady tabletop gaming with an enthusiastic group and, you know, really coming into my own as both a player and a uh, game master until college when, you know, everybody was out from under mom and dad's purse strings and out from under their apron strings and, on their own and basically able to explore that kind of interaction without having to worry about whether they looked cool or not. Um, but another thing is that, uh, you know, I'm a person of color and it's, and where were you, where were you born? 
I am originally from the United States Virgin Islands. Okay, I was born on St. Thomas. And uh, so, yeah, when I, I moved there, I was born there, lived in Maryland for like 10 years, moved back for my teenage years, and then came up to New England for college. And I've been living in New England ever since. But uh, finding groups of gamers that are diverse continues to be a challenge. You know, I, I don't, uh, part of it is my group of friends, you know, my, because my community tends to be from the pool of video gamers, it does tend to steer white and male. Okay. You know, we, we make strong efforts to try and attract and accept everyone who comes to the door. So long as, you know, they're not, Total, totally terrible people. Cause like I said, we want to have people in our community that we want to play with, not just warm bodies to fill a roster. And it can be very difficult to find other folks who look like me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not a huge problem. I'll play with whoever wants to pull up to the table. It, it would be nice to have a bit more diversity in gaming. And uh, I've encountered that on, on both ends, both as someone who helps run a community and have uh, new gamers come to us, and as someone who goes to conventions and wants to sit down at tables with strangers and play games with them. You know, it, it doesn't happen very often, but every now and then I'll, I'll get a funny look like, oh, hey, don't see people like you very much at the table. And I just shrug and play. Because <laughs> I'm there to play. Yeah, and being a, a a person of of color, and I think now, hopefully, I think things are moving in a better direction in terms of representation and kind of all forms of, of gaming. But certainly back in the you know 80s and 90s and aughts, um, I would imagine that some of those glances were maybe a little bit more problematic or aggressive. Oh, certainly. Certainly. Um, it's gotten better in the last decade or so. But yeah, when I was early 20s, especially when I was in college, like in in my specific group, everything was cool. But if we ever went elsewhere or went to a convention, it got kind of weird sometimes. And while I'm on the topic, um, yeah, please, you know, not the, the representation problem isn't just at the tables. It's also in the content. Okay. You know, it's I. I have a very difficult time finding folks who look like me or who represent uh, stories outside of the Western European norm in the content published by t tabletop RPG creators. And, you know, in a way, we're kind of inventing our own mythology. And to to quote Avery Brooks, who played Ben Sisko on DS9, you know, it is very important that brown children and brown people in general can see people who look like them in contemporary mythology. And I really hope that more effort is made. I know there are plenty of folks out there who are making the effort. Uh, the first person who comes to mind is, uh, is Quinn, whose last name I can't remember Quinn at Murphy. the moment. <laughs> Quinn Murphy. That's right. And uh, he's, he's been doing a lot to push that forward over the years. I've known him on Twitter and you know, he deserves all the props for that. I, but I've been meaning, I want to ask him if he'll come on the show at some point. I think that'd be awesome. Oh, he totally him. should. He totally should. We'll have to make that happen. That would, that would be a talk I would love to listen to. Excellent.
But yeah, in addition to being at the table, it really needs to start showing up in the content. And I think it's not going to start showing up in the content until more creators like Quinn are actually employed by the publishers or contracted by the publishers and say, hey, look, we need to tell these kind of stories. Let's go ahead and hire the people who can tell them. And so, you know, I've talked to some female writers and, uh, you know, women who are in the RPG industry in, in some in some form in the past, which they've provided this feedback as well that, you know, there needs to be more women involved in content generation, uh, you know, more women involved in gaming and, you know, making it a more welcome community. And I think in those conversations, too, I very much identified, like, I'm a – I'm a very white male. <laughs> like, um, I, I blend in. I've recognized that that privilege that I have. I've gotten into arguments with other family members about white privilege and saying, like, yes, this is a thing. It, it exists. And, you know, not to turn this into a political conversation, but mm. I wonder for other people who might be listening who are white or, you know, maybe don't think about these things nearly as much, what – what is it like for you as someone who obviously loves gaming? You've been deeply immersed and who knows how many hours have spent like on this hobby over your lifetime. What is it like to almost be playing like other people's stories or other people's adventures and not something that represents you? That's actually a really good question. For the vast majority of my life, like it wasn't really until seven years ago or so that I started to look at this somewhat differently, but it, pardon me, I'm just trying to think through this here, make sure I get my words no, right. That's, but that's not a problem at all. I almost want to say the, the quietly dominant part of privilege is when you don't, is when you become so normalized, so default that no one else even questions the fact that what your normal is, is the default. You know, I had gotten used to seeing all of the hero characters in my Final Fantasy games were light-skinned, and all of the cover art on all of the dungeon modules I would buy would be light-skinned. And I, I kind of internalized that, not so much as, hey, where am I? But like, okay, I guess this is the default now. This is, this is what heroes look like. And it wasn't until I had a son of my own and he got to the age where he started consuming gaming content on his own that I started to realize, hey, I don't really have very many people either in any of my tabletop resources or in any of the video games that we own that I can point to and say, look, son, that hero looks like you. And... That's when it really started to concern me that, hey, you know, we need some balance. We need some representation. It is of utmost importance that in the stories we tell and the worlds we create, we each one of us has someone there that we can look at and see and go, OK, that person is an example to follow. That person can be a role model, you know. It, I think the the worst possible scenario would be one of those situations where all the heroes are light skinned and all the villains are dark skinned. That's absolutely terrible, and thankfully I haven't seen that in gaming in quite some time. But I can only imagine the impact something like that would have on someone like my son, who at the age of six was just kind of emerging into the gaming 
sphere. Yeah, and I think of like the upcoming movie Black Panther, which I remember when I saw that trailer, I was like, "This is amazing!" Like that trailer was fantastic. And I, you know, have a conversation with, with a friend who was like, "Yeah, you know, you know, he's on the Marvel movies and stuff." You know, another white male like me, and it's like, "Yeah, it looks okay." I'm like, and I just kind of talked about it on a different level that he really wasn't prepared for. Mm-hmm. I said, "Just imagine being a person of color and seeing this." huge studio movie that everybody is not white like most of the people are not white like it's amazing and the fact that this is amazing is kind of unfortunate that this hasn't already been happening but the the cast and it just looks different and it's really exciting that it looks different yeah the the thing about black panther that excites me in particular is you know as someone who grew up in I'll call it brown culture. Um, I was no stranger to seeing films with all with the, the entire cast being people of color, but those were usually comedies mm-hmm. or movies that told and were marketed to explicitly people of color. And the thing about Black Panther, which I find very interesting, is that this is a summer blockbuster action film that is marketed to everyone. To mainstream, this is, like, yeah. everyone get in there. This is a movie for everybody. It's not just a niche comedy. It's not the, uh, you know, it's not Russell Simmons or the, um, the Wayans brothers making some slapstick. This is a Marvel Disney produced summer blockbuster full of amazingly powerful and beautiful people of color. And it's going to be on every screen everywhere. It's not going to be a niche showing. This is going to be a big blockbuster with all of Marvel and Disney's muscle behind it. And that, that feels really good. I really hope the movie does well. I hope it's a good movie first and foremost, but even if it's not, I hope it does well because this is the kind of thing we need to encourage. Yeah. And even talking about, you know that film not you know that film coming up i mean i'm interpreting but it sounds like there's some pride or satisfaction certainly there oh absolutely absolutely i will cop to that no problem and i imagine um you know being able to take your son to that is pretty pretty exciting oh yes yeah we are we are both looking forward to that we we sat down on the couch the night the uh the night of the the trailer release and we watched it on our big TV and he was like, that looks amazing. When's it coming out? <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I think if I'm hearing you, like that type of content in something like Dungeons and Dragons, where, where is it is sort of the vibe I'm getting from you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll readily admit, you know, that you look at the, you look at the talent that's currently in the field as far as writers and creators of this stuff. And it is overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. And I am, I'm okay if creators who are white and male decide not to try and tackle those stories, because it would be just as awkward as me trying to tackle, you know, a, an RPG story about the antebellum South. You know, I, I, I was not there and I don't have that, 
background where I can go ask my parents or have heard stories from my grandparents about what it was like or what it would have been like. You know, I don't have any place trying to tell that story. And they kind of don't have that, a place telling my stories either. You know, we, we need to have the proper representation in the cre- on the creation side before we can start seeing authentic representation in the content itself. And what would it look like not to have you come up with like a big, huge campaign or would it be some type of character class background locations? Like what, what are, what are, what would be examples of content you'd like to see going forward? That's a good question. And one that I haven't really deeply thought about yet. Um, one thing I'm doing, I, I've maintained a kind of in-house campaign setting, not, nothing as, as, uh, detailed and awesome as, uh, Patterson's Carthoon, but, um, there is a, there is an, an empire in my game world that is loosely based on kind of a fusion between, uh, ancient Indian and Egyptian cultures. And most of the people from this part of the world are people of color. And at what point they were to that world, what, say, England and Portugal were to the new world in the 15th and 16th centuries. So they it's a it kind of flips the script and puts it into us into a situation where, hey, you know, these people who don't look like the quote unquote default were the conquerors at one point. And they've since gone into decline, but, you know, just telling stories that include folks who look like us without making us tokens and without making it hokey is what's key here. Don't just – we're not a checkbox to be checked off to make sure you've covered all of your bases. It has to be something that you – integrate from the ground level and you know when you're when you're going ahead going ahead and planning out your world history and saying okay and here we're going to have a sort of renaissance in this country and then go ask yourself hey this country where is it what's the climate like would it make sense for them to not necessarily be the light-skinned default european of most fantasy storytelling you know would it make sense for these people to be brown or ashy gray colored or, you know, some other color, you know, make it authentic Mm -hmm. from the ground up rather than just hanging something on the wall at the last minute and saying, hey, look, we've got we've got brown people or brown elves or brown dwarves or whatever you want to call them. And I'm thinking back again to how we were collaborating to putting together NPCs. And I don't believe I don't think they have a random table, and obviously you would just need, you know, three options or so for gender. Like, I think Mm -hmm. it's – and I think for a lot of people – and I found this – I think I even wrote an article about it, like 2011 or so when when we were playing 4th edition, and I was kind of creating a world on the fly and, like, different villains and NPCs, and I had just kind of caught myself. I was was like, where are all the women? Like, I have no female and, like, major NPCs that the characters were interacting with, and I, I made a point to change that. But mm-hmm. I think kind of getting back to your idea earlier where I think for a lot of people the default is white male. Like, that's, right. that's sort of like the vanilla flavor that's a default, and it. I think the more we can all at least acknowledge, like, that's what we think. 
that that's mm-hmm. the default. Like just having that awareness, I think, can give us room to make some other choices. It's I think sometimes people aren't even aware of like that's the default. Right. There was a even like to add to those tables in the the DMG of hey like why don't you randomize gender or sex or however you want to describe it and then include right. trans characters and randomize skin color or mm-hmm. and I don't think that type of chart is in there. I could be wrong. Uh, I don't believe that's in there for creating NPCs, but even if you had 10 to 12 different options for skin color, at least it makes makes DMs think like, oh, yeah, I don't have to just do the, the, the quote-unquote default in my head. Right. Or at the very least, just ha- having that table in the book would invite right. the reader to challenge their assumptions. Exactly. Which is all that really needs to be done. If you can challenge your assumption and come out of it saying – oh, hmm, I, I should probably start thinking about what these guys look like rather than just coming up with names and stat blocks, you know, and beyond just what they're wearing, what do they look like underneath? And that can lead you, if you're open to it, that can definitely lead you to being more inclusive in your dramatis personae and being more diverse in what you bring to the table to present your players. I think anything that kind of opens up the scope of uh, possibilities for, for players and for DMs and certainly the content creators, and I think they're moving in that direction, um, it seems like a slow process. <laughs> it, it certainly is. But, uh, you know, I have I have decent amount of confidence that we're, we're making forward progress. Sometimes it feels like a glacier marching to the sea. But I, I definitely can say that over the last – 20 years or so, we have made an astounding amount of progress and we continue to march. You know, people are starting to include, you know, gay and lesbian and NB characters in their stories and and, and RPGs. And hopefully we're going to start seeing more women and more people of color. And, you know, actually, this brings up an uh, interesting question. When we collaborated on your NPCs, I had given you like a an aside at the end of the email about one of the characters that I had detailed and said, hey, if you want to turn this on its head and make it less heteronormative, maybe you can have this character be gay. And I, I thought that was a really compelling story hook because it, it's something that a lot of folks just wouldn't have expected, particularly given this character's background. Yes, I am being purposely vague because I don't want to ruin it for your players, okay. but my question to you, Mike, is did you end up making that character gay? I have not one way or the other because they didn't – it didn't get to be too um, – they wouldn't have found out one way or the other. Understood. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm totally open to to that. So, I, I again, I think everyone just defaults to the norm. Like, well, all my NPCs are, are hetero. Mm-hmm. Without even really making that choice, it's just that's that's the default. Right, And I think the more you can challenge that or be aware of like, oh, that's my default when I create a character for a campaign, whether it's a innkeeper or a sergeant or a villain, that my default is, well, yeah, they're, they're hetero. And I know one of the characters I created for a campaign a while ago was um, not hetero, and that kind of played into her backstory and how it led her – down a certain path and like that was a big story element for the game and the players and it was interesting to see that play out at the table um Mm -hmm. not in a bad way it was just it just tweaked things a a little bit it was 
I, I feel like it made it a little bit more interesting. And as we're talking, I, I know I was recently, uh, last episode, talking with Enrique about the Tomb of Annihilation and just thinking about like the different characters the uh, from Cholt. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The peninsula in Tomb of Annihilation and like all the artwork in the book about characters and stuff, they're all mostly like persons of color. With, mm-hmm. It's an official Watsi product. So I think, like, I don't know if something like that happens 10, 15 years ago. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Um, I think the, the closest I have ever seen to that would be, oh, what was it? It either would have been like one of the really old Dark Sun supplements or uh, we I, I we kind of got close to something I consider representative in Eberron, mm-hmm. Keith Baker's old campaign setting, um, particularly with the uh, the elves in Zendrick, that uh, continent to the south where everybody goes uh, archaeologically digging and okay. trying not to get killed by ogres. Right. And <laughs> um, that came close, but it wasn't nearly far enough. It was it, it felt they they spent so much effort putting definition and history behind the primary continent of Corvair that when it came time to address the, the very other feeling land of Zendrick, it just felt, it felt tacked on. It felt unexplored, which I guess was what they were going for. They wanted to leave it purposely vague for game masters to go ahead and fill in themselves. But it, it almost felt like it was like, okay, and we're going to put everything that feels like other here and you guys figure it out. But yeah, that, that the something like Tomb of Annihilation with that kind of representation does not get written 10, 15 years ago. Absolutely not. Yeah. I have not personally read Tomb of Annihilation just because I, I haven't been playing fifth edition D and D very, very much lately, but uh, I have heard nothing but great things about it. From from both you and Enrique and uh, Brian Patterson has nothing but great things to say about it, and I've just been reading great reviews online. And, and so one of the things I wanted to jump in, you mentioned kind of er, very early on that this idea, of not in, in addition to representation in gaming, but just having kind of a safer, a good community of people to game with, and I think those mm-hmm. things are very much kind of tied together. They're certainly linked together. It's maybe a better way to phrase it. So how how have you developed that community or fostered that community over time? What's worked for you? Completely by accident. Okay. No. Um, <laughs> Serendipity. Yeah. No. Um, about 12 years ago, I started playing World of Warcraft on the advice of an old friend of mine. And I took to the game like a fish to water, and I loved it. And I realized very quickly that in order to do anything beyond just grind levels, you need to have a community to play with. And I had drifted from guild to guild a few times early on in my playing career. And with World of Warcraft, yes, it is a career. And I always found myself drifting between guilds that were incredibly loosely organized. If you even want to use the word organized at all, it was just a group of people who all happened to have the same tag over their head. And ones that were run by folks I would call martinets, like folks who just really 
require strong discipline. I am the boss. We will do this when I say we do this and so on and so forth. You, you must be this build. You must be max level by next week so that we can go raiding and so on and so forth. And taskmasters basically. Yeah. Yeah. Very much the taskmaster method of leadership. And I didn't like either of them. And Usually when I find myself tasting everything that's on offer and not liking what I find, I end up going into the kitchen and figuring it out myself. And I found a few folks on the server I started on and we started a guild. And one of the first things I laid down as the guild master was that, hey, we're about the people. We're not about the player. We got to find good people, like somebody you don't mind cracking open a beer with, even if you're not playing. And that's the, the truly important thing. And that guild lasted, I want to say, for about two years, maybe two and a half. And we drifted apart for – I don't even remember the reason. I think it may have been because there were some – harder core elements who wanted to progress faster than we were progressing. So they took off for fields unknown and the folks who stayed behind, we got together, we moved servers and we decided to start over this time with a tighter focus on recruiting the person, not the player. And my co-founder and I, Todd Chartier and started what we call now the hammer gaming community. And we founded that back in 2007, and we're still going today. Most of us no longer play World of Warcraft, but we've kind of morphed from a World of Warcraft guild into a general gaming community where, you know, any game under the sun is fair game. Uh, we run our own Minecraft server, uh, a Factorio server where people go ahead and put together crazy factories to build things. Um, we we've played things like Overwatch and Heroes of the Storm and Civ <laughs> games together, if you can imagine, if you could believe it. Um, and every year we all get together up here in Massachusetts and have a great big cookout where people fly in or drive in from all over the country. And we have a, a weekend long shindig where people get to see each other in person and handshake and hug and have some have some fine food and drink. And uh, it's it's been a been a great ride i have to say and i'm very fortunate to have found my partner in todd and all of the other great admins who helped me administrate the community and just all the great players who've joined our community over the years i am very very thankful to have them and i am very humbled to be one of their leaders because i think i don't think i would still be a gamer to the degree that i am without a solid, stable, social, and friendly community to come home to every evening and say, hey, what are we playing today? Let's go have some fun. That's awesome that you have that that support, that, that feedback loop, that, that community. How many people are a part of that? Uh, I would go ahead and estimate it at about uh, 40 to 50 people okay. at this wow. point. I mean, it, it's a fairly good-sized community. I, I know we have – I'm looking at our Discord server right now, and we have over 100 users on our Discord server. But as far as the regulars, the folks who are around each and every day, it's going to be between uh, – yeah, between 30 and 50 at any given time. Okay. That sounds great. I know I was so, talking with a buddy of mine, um, the other podcast I run. He was talking about this group called Season Gamers, which I think it's it's a bigger organization, and their idea was to have – 
kind of similar, like a community where it's just people who are nice, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah. Because the, the toxicity thing online, is, at least in video games, it's brutal. It's really – and that's me talking as a white male. I imagine as a person of color, which, again, online, they might not even know who you are, but just the language that's used and the hostility people have. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess if you feel comfortable, like what's that been like for the over the years for you? I'll readily admit that it's disturbing when I see it, but because I I don't have the stereotypical Caribbean accent, as you can no doubt tell, and I I can very easily, at least in audio, pass as white. So I don't get it directed at me nearly as much as I could. So I'm able to pass. Uh, where I see it is I see it directed against women all the time. Like there, there are women in our community who will not go on voice comms unless it is hammer exclusive voice comms. And with good reason, because they, they never know if they, if they reveal the fact that they are a woman to the general public in, say, an Overwatch match, that might be the only thing that gets discussed for the rest of the Overwatch match, and they just want to play. And that really sucks. It, it's been a consistent problem for sheesh, uh, the 25 years I've been a, an online gamer. It, it has been a problem since the very beginning, and it. I'm just happy that I'm able to help provide a safer space for that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's uh, it sucks, and I, I will say, with, with at the risk of sounding vaguely political, uh, in the last eighteen months, it has gotten noticeably worse outside of our little walled garden. It it, it has definitely gotten noticeably worse in public discourse, both in 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 text chat and in audio chat. It's just bad. Yes, and I I think that type of. Language and that type of mentality has been not just subtly, but just overtly encouraged as an okay form of behavior. And it's, it's not. (laughs) And it's one of the reasons, like Overwatch, like I, I got that for PS4, I don't know, about a year or so ago and got into it. And I'm not that great at the game. And honestly, I think I've only really developed any marginal skill with two or three of the characters. Cause the one fun thing about that game is you can, it feels like a different game depending on what hero you're playing. Like you can absolutely you can approach it a lot of different ways, support or more of a tank or so like, it's a fun game and the whole like unlocking costumes or skins like that's, that is, is right up my alley. I, I'm a sucker for stuff like that, but it's just, you're always online. There's no kind of single campaign mode. So you have to play with other people Right. And uh, since I don't have like a big group of friends on PS4 that play and just coordinating, even if I did, would be hard. It's more or less, oh, when I have a moment, I'll play. And just some of the stuff that you hear through the microphone, it's just brutal. Oh, yeah. It encourages you to either turn it off or not coordinate with people. And then the game's not as fun if you're not coordinating with people. And even like I stopped playing sports games online a long time ago because of the competitive nature and people just being angry. And it sort of led me to, well, I'm going to play Mass Effect for 60 hours. I'm just going to kind of be in my own little world and play this game, which is. Well, I mean, if you're going to choose to do something by yourself, Mike, you can choose many, many, many worse things 
than playing Mass, Mass Effect. Effect. Mass Effect is yes. amazing. And like games like Red Dead Redemption, and like I would, I think yep. I just kind of geared it. It was, you know, I like those games anyway because I'm a big role playing game fan. And but also it was, I remember playing Halo back on the old Xbox, and we yep. loved it when we had these LAN parties of friends I knew. We were all kind of in person, but in different rooms and. Like, that was fun, but as soon as, like, it tried to go online and you're playing with these strangers who are just dropping the N-word and calling people every kind of slur, and it's like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. And at first, I would say, like, oh, well, it's just like a bunch of young kids being stupid, but it's more than being stupid. It's like adults. It's bad. It's And I always, I still complain to Blizzard on Twitter, like, just the card game I play, Hearthstone, Hearthstone, yeah. There's this whole culture of if you beat somebody, they'll send you a friend request and just abuse you, and then they delete the friend request and they're gone, and there's, like, no way to report them. Like, nothing happens. Right. I just don't know how it's 2017 and that type of thing can't be filtered. But then again, Twitter's horrible with filtering things, and Facebook's terrible. It's I don't know. I feel very negative all of a sudden. I don't mean to bring everybody down, but I, <laughs> but I, I think, again, for folks who maybe don't have to – deal with this kind of stuff as gamers or it's easier for them to shut it off or be like oh well they're not talking about me you know there's folks like you women in, who are trying to play games who are trying to enjoy themselves and it's a it's a difficult hobby to enjoy if you're not part of the quote-unquote default right and i i think that's where communities like mine kind of come yeah, in absolutely you know, it, it, it's definitely beneficial to gaming as a whole if you have some place to play and people to play with where you know that you're not going to be harassed simply because of your gender or or your skin color or the, even the way you talk. I mean, like I said, we have lots of members and we've got people from all over the U.S. and people from outside the U.S. There's a there's a guy in Belgium. <laughs> who's a hammer and he he speaks with a bit of an accent and of course uh, our southern members speak with a bit of an accent and the folks from the west coast sound a lot different from the folks from the east coast and i've heard those kind of differences picked on in public chats like public voice chat and it's like really really you, you couldn't find a, a woman to harass and so now you're going to harass somebody over the fact that they they are obviously southern because of their voice it's like why what what are we doing here what are you doing with your time what like we're we're, we're here to shoot each other in the face not right. <laughs> not make fun of each other civilized and just headshot each other from across the battlefield exactly exactly a a civilized headshot a, a relic of a bygone and more dignified age i feel like that should be somebody's uh Gaming community title, Civilized Headshot. Civilized Headshot. Founded in 2017. <laughs> there you go, folks. You can have that one right, for free. Yeah, just give us credit, you know, somewhere in the bio line of, of the uh, of the site. So This is a Creative Commons att- attribution license. What's coming up for you? Like, what are some of the things you're looking forward forward to uh, with, with gaming? Let's see. Uh, tomorrow is the very second session of a Star Trek Adventures game that I'm playing with a group full of hammers. It's uh, being run by Mike Worthley of the Space Javelin podcast and formerly from Mac and N. He was the editor of that site for some years before it shut down, uh, I think, in 2016. Um 
And as far as on the video gaming front, uh, Destiny 2 is coming out on October 28th, which is the day I get back from my vacation. So I am very much looking forward now, to that. I was that a... way, or this is just something that happened by No, that, that was completely <laughs> serendipitous. I wish I had planned it that way. But no, it just – we had all decided – once we heard that Destiny 2 was coming to PC, not everybody in my, in, in my group – owns a PS4, and even the ones that do, a lot of them aren't huge fans of playing shooters on PS4. They're kind of keyboard and mouse purists. So I played Destiny 1 on PS4 and loved it. My family loved it. All three of us played. And it was always a hard thing to try and find other people to play with. And because we only own one PlayStation and one television... It was never a really opp- there was never an opportunity for my wife and I to play together, or my son and I to play together, or the three of us to play together. Uh, that would have required buying two more PlayStations and two more monitors, and we weren't going to that kind of expense. But we all have gaming computers, so once we heard that it was coming out on PC, we just said, "Well, three copies of the PC version is a lot cheaper than even buying one PlayStation, so let's just go ahead and do this on PC." And that dovetailed wonderfully with. The, the preferences of other hammers who would say, I would much rather play a shooter with keyboard and mouse. So it's, it appears as though we're going to have a huge exodus into Destiny 2 when that comes out at the end of the month. And that is very much the next big gaming thing I'm looking forward to as far as video games are concerned. And so here's an opportunity if you want to take it. I, I never played Destiny. I think I watched my friend's son play for about five minutes one day when I was over mm-hmm. the house. Why should I get into that? Destiny 2. So, okay, I'm going to take the lazy okay. way out, and I'm going to try and compare it to something else you may have played. Were you ever a player of the Borderlands series? Uh, I think I, I played Borderlands 2 uh, for, for a bit. I never finished that game, but I, I played it and enjoyed it. Okay. Imagine the Borderlands 2 gameplay cycle where you have a mission or a quest you go do it usually completing it by shooting bad guys and then at the end you get loot that makes you more powerful so you you go into that rpg video game cycle with some of the best gunplay like video game gunplay you could ever find anywhere i mean you played halo back in the day so you know that bungie has gunplay on lock Mm -hmm. so Bring the expertise that Bungie has developed over the last decade or the last 15 years of making Halo games and put that into a very compelling world. Like the the storytelling from Destiny 1, while flawed in its delivery, was very, very good in its content. It was some of the best storytelling I've ever seen in gaming. It's just that in Destiny 1, it wasn't really told in the game itself. What would happen in D1 was you would... You would accomplish feats in the game, you would accomplish quests in the game, and it would unlock pages of this thing called the Grimoire, and the Grimoire would reveal backstory and lore to you, but you couldn't read it in-game. You had to either use your mobile phone app or go to the Bungie.net website, which means a lot of people who were playing the game missed out on that the lore. sounds clunky. But Even like in Skyrim it, and stuff where it's like, oh, you unlock this page, or here's a book you can read. I'm like, eh, I'm not going right. to do that. In Destiny 2, they have they have very much improved the in-game storytelling. 
And just from my exposure to the PC beta about a month ago, it was it was very immersive. The gunplay was fantastic. The the graphics are fantastic as well. And so is that, is and that where you are, is that where you can play it through like the Blizzard Net portal or correct, correct. Since uh, Activision is the publisher for Bungie in their partnership on Destiny, and since Activision owns Blizzard, they're using Blizzard's uh, distribution system to push the game out to their PC customers. Because it's sitting there every time I play – well, I usually play Hearthstone on my phone, but when I play it on the computer, now there's the little Destiny icon that I think is mm-hmm. in everybody. And I'm <laughs> considering diving in. But part of that is, well, like I'd want to find a group of folks that you know, aren't yelling at me. <laughs> for, like, you're terrible at this game. Stop doing what you're doing. But I'm, I'm definitely curious because that whole – I think the most fun I've had with that whole, like, loot cycle was Diablo 3. I got into that for a while, which I know that's, I know that's oh, a yeah. shooter, but just that idea of here's a mission. Go do it. Level up your character. It's like my little bar is progressing farther. That's rewarding. Right. Whole, and here's stuff that makes you more powerful so it's more satisfying the next time you go out and do an ex- another mission. I know mission. what's happening. It's just very simple psychological concepts of reinforcement and – I'm mm-hmm. I'm in the Skinner box. I'm 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 happy to jump in there from time to time. The new game I just got yesterday <laughs> is Battle Chasers. So I've been hearing great things about it, yeah. and I've I've looked at the videos, and it looks very very good. If I didn't have like three games on yeah. deck, I would absolutely be hopping into Battle Chasers because that looks like everything I've wanted out of a JRPG style game in quite some time. Uh, and I I gave myself I think I even told. Brian Patterson on Twitter. I was like, I gave myself permission to just blow off my other games to start this because it just looked, <laughs> it looked like a lot of fun. So excited for that. Um, one question I had, I don't know if someone's listening to this and they're like, wow, I, this whole hammer gaming thing sounds like exactly what I've been looking for. Is there a way to apply or is it just something that you cultivate from folks, you know, um, I, I try to cultivate it uh, organically, just, you know, referrals and such, but we are always open to uh, talking to new folks who are interested in checking the community out. Uh, the best way to reach us right now would be via Twitter. It's the Hammer Gaming, all one word, Twitter account, H-A-M-M-E-R-G-A-M-I-N-G. Or you can find me directly on Twitter at V-A-L-T-H-O-N-I-S. That's Valthonis on Twitter. Well, Dwayne, thank you very much for spending so much time with me here today. I really enjoyed talking with you about um, just kind of your development as a gamer. And just I think the representation issue is a really good conversation for a lot of people to be having. So I'm glad we could start that conversation. And hopefully it continues in other podcasts and articles and people who are creating content. Hopefully they hear it and maybe think a little bit differently about things going forward. So yeah, and excited to stay in touch with you, certainly through Twitter and such, and maybe we'll play some Destiny together in the future. That would be fantastic. And, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, we just got to keep rolling this ball forward, and eventually we'll get to someplace even better than where we are now. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Mike. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, have a great day. You too, man.